Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other side of midnight, I'm Frank Morano. There was a fascinating column that uh, caught my eye the other day, and it had a very provocative headline. And then when I read the article, it was incredibly persuasive. The headline was, Why are retired American generals so consistently wrong? I saw the headline, I thought to myself, Well, wait a minute, are they actually consistently wrong? How did these people get promoted to be generals in the first place if they're all wrong? Surely whoever wrote this must be some sort of anti-American anarchist bent on destroying national security as we know it. Sure enough, the author of that piece is not only a former CIA agent and analyst, but a former deputy director in the U.S. State Department's Office of Counterterrorism. Not exactly considered an anti-state communist by any stretch of the imagination. Imagination. And it happens to be somebody whose work I've been following for a long time in the media and elsewhere. And I'm very pleased that he's agreed to join me on the program to sort of chew the fat over some of the serious national security issues that we're all facing these days at a time when that appears to be paramount on the minds of not only voters, but average ordinary Americans and policymakers. Very pleased to welcome to the program for the first time, Larry Johnson, former CIA agent and former deputy director in the State Department's Office of Counterterrorism. Mr. Johnson, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, Frank. Thanks for having me. So just so folks understand your perspective, I mentioned your tenure with the CIA. People might have seen you in the media or heard you in the media over the years. Give folks a little bit of the the Reader's Digest version of your background as it relates to government service. Yeah, so I spent four years at the CIA. I worked both on the operations side of the house and as an analyst. Uh, I left, I was moved from uh, CIA to State Department's Office of Counterterrorism. I was there for four years and then I was downsized because I didn't think terrorism was going to be much of an issue anymore. And I set up a consulting business. Uh, during that uh, 23 years, I was a consultant to the U.S. Military Special Operations Command. I scripted over 250 exercises or executed them. And uh, as well, my, my business also was involved with doing money laundering investigations around the world. So I had a sort of unique perspective. I had experience with the intelligence community, both operations and analytical. I had experience with the policy side from State Department on the foreign policy side. And I also dealt with the FBI extensively. We were the liaison with them on the Pan Am 103 bombing. And I dealt extensively with transportation security. So I sort of had a, I had a, a view of the forest. I didn't get caught up with the trees. I had, uh, had sort of a big picture view. 
And I've been able to use that knowledge to try to educate people. Let me begin with the column you wrote that uh, that caught my eye. Why are retired American generals so consistently wrong? There's a lot of generals that uh, constantly pop up in the media. On Fox News Channel, for instance, General Jack Keane is a staple. On radio, television, and the op-ed pages of the Wall Street Journal, people like General Petraeus, who himself was the former director of the CIA, he never hesitates to make his opinion on military matters and foreign policy matters wrong. Before we get into the reason why uh, these generals are wrong. Are these generals actually wrong, and what are they wrong about? Uh, they are wrong about Russia across the board. They failed to acknowledge what took place, which was a coup in 2014, and then a war that Ukraine launched against its own people. Uh, in Russia, for that, that was not Russia's fault by any stretch. But what they're really wrong about is None of our these current list group of retired generals and our current active duty generals, they've never fought a winning war where they've gone up against uh, a, a comparable foe, somebody who's equal to us, somebody who has uh, you know a comparable air, air force, somebody who has a comparable artillery force and tanks, etc. Uh, we've we've spent the last thirty years beating up on I call it like. It's like the bully in the neighborhood that beats up on kids in a wheelchair. Uh, because we've been fighting, uh, you know, in Afghanistan, we fought in Iraq. And, we, you know, we were fighting against the insurgents. They didn't have artillery to fire back at us. They didn't have what's called counter-battery. They didn't have an air force. They didn't have long-range missiles. They had mortars and they had uh, rifles and, and machine guns. That was it. And we didn't defeat them. And so here these guys are criticizing, sitting in judgment on Russia, who's actually combined. They're fighting a combined arms operation. And that means they're using uh, the the units on the ground are integrated with artillery. They're integrated with tanks. They're integrated with air cover, both fixed wing and rotary wing. And these guys are, they're talking about something they have zero experience with. And, and they're making their predictions have been just, you know, wrong consistently coupled with they continue to diminish and, and proclaim that Russia's inept, incompetent, uh, that it's filled with conscripts, that they're poorly trained, poorly led. You know, <laughs> the irony of that is here these guys are criticizing Russia's te- te- technical capability. And yet, you know, since 2004, the only country in the world that's had the capability to haul our astronauts to the International Space Station was Russia. <laughs> so how is it that the technologically incompetent Russians were the ones that were saving our bacon? Because we could not launch rockets that could safely carry astronauts to outer space. So I want to make sure I didn't mishear what you said as it relates to the Russia-Ukraine war, because there was a little bit of uh, distortion on the line. I just want to make sure I was clear on it. And uh, we're talking with Larry Johnson, former CIA analyst and former deputy director in the State Department. When you when you um, were talking about the Russia-Ukraine war, did you say or did I hear correctly that Russia didn't do anything wrong? Is that what you said? That's exactly what I said. You know, imagine how the United States would react 
if Russia or China was conducting military exercises with uh, military exercises with Mexico every year since 2014. You think we'd be concerned? Absolutely. We would view that as a direct threat to us. Well, that's exactly what the United States and NATO have been doing with uh, Ukraine over the last eight years. Every year we would conduct a military exercise, oftentimes on Ukrainian soil, with NATO troops and U.S. troops. And, and Russia's looking at that saying, you know, what are they doing? Because when you look at the record, you know, like we like to portray Russia as an imperial power. They're going out to conquer the world. Russia has only been involved with military operations on its borders, dealing with security threats. They were attacked in 2008 by Georgia. They responded to that. They defeated Georgia. So what they're looking at was Ukraine was building up forces to go into the Donbass in uh, 2022, in, in January, February. And, and Russia reacted to that. We refused to accept or acknowledge that. We, we continue with this myth. Meanwhile, the only country in the world that has been involved with multiple expeditionary military adventures attacking other countries has been the United States. We've been in Iraq twice. We've been in Afghanistan. We're currently in Syria. We've been in Yemen. We've been in Somalia. We've been in the Balkans. You know, just go down the list. Uh, we, you know, we invaded Panama. Uh, we, you know, back in the 60s, we went in the Dominican Republic. So the United States, when it's going to sit there and moralize about uh, an imperial power attacking other countries, we need to look in the mirror. I think, you know, it's I'm so glad that you're coming on this program because I like to offer an alternative to the constant drumbeat of neocon propaganda that you see on just about every channel these days now that Tucker Carlson is uh, is off the air. But uh, a lot of folks listening to this are going to find what you said as very jarring. Not only do most of us grow up thinking that the United States is the good guys, but I've had people like uh, General Wesley Clark, former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, on this program, and he emphasized six ways from Sunday that NATO doesn't start wars, that NATO is a defensive force, and even if the If Russia was on firm moral ground by going after the Zelensky government for their atrocities in the Donbass region and for other things, a lot of people are going to point to the conduct of the Russians. The International Criminal Court at The Hague has declared Vladimir Putin a war criminal. There's been a list. There's been a list of multiple Russian war crimes, people claiming deliberate attacks against civilian targets, massacres of civilians, even people claiming torture and rape of women and children, mutilation of Ukrainian prisoners of war. Is any of that true? And how do people know what's true and what's not true? How do they know what to believe in this respect? Well, what they're up against is a massive propaganda effort by the United States. Uh, We've been uh, on what I call a disinformation campaign against Russia for a long, long time. And part of it boiled down to we, we really got upset with Russia in 2014 when the United States with the United Kingdom were involved with funneling weapons to 
extremist groups in Syria. Remember, we were fighting the war on terrorism against the Islamic extremist groups, except we decided it was then a good idea to arm them. <clears throat> Those weapons were flowing through Benghazi. We can get into Benghazi some other time, but that, you know, the weapons were coming out of there. The government of Syria asked Russia to come in and help them fight this threat from Islamic extremists, and Russia did. They went in at the invitation of Syria, and they started crushing ISIS and these radical extremists. You know, part of the Syrian, the Syrian government was also protecting Christians, and these, these radical Islamists were attacking Christian communities in Syria. And so here was Russia doing the right thing, and we were, uh, we were actually arming the very people that we claimed were a threat for uh, international terrorism. It, we're talking with Larry Johnson. People just tuning in. You could also check out Larry's website if you want to read some of his work at uh, Sonar21.com. That stands for A Son of the New American Revolution, Sonar21.com. Larry, give me your thoughts on what happened with Brigosian. Uh, the conventional narrative in Western media is that Putin had him whacked for his role in the coup. But there's certainly no shortage of uh, potential enemies that Brigosian of the Wagner group had, both in Russia and abroad. What do you think happened? Yeah, it was either sabotage by, you know, there's a whole list of people that could have done it. Uh, Russian uh, Air Force officers who were seeking retaliation against the Wagner Group for uh, killing 13 of their colleagues during the, the mutiny on June 24th. Uh, people inside Wagner they could have uh, sabotaged the aircraft, uh, as well as uh, potential you know, foreign intelligence operators. But it wasn't Putin. I mean, think of, you know, Putin had ample opportunity to kill Prigozhin. You know, think of that scene from uh, the movie uh, The Untouchables, where Al Capone's got all those guys gathered around the table, and he walks around and whacks some guy in the head right. with a baseball bat. Right. Okay? If Putin really wanted to kill Prigozhin for mutiny, Prigozhin came to his office, Putin could have stood up, put a gun to his head, and blown his brains out. But he didn't do that. So the day that Prigozhin died, Putin was doing a ceremony commemorating the victory of Russia over the Nazis at the Battle of Kursk that had taken place 80 years ago. At the same time, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov was at the BRICS summit in South Africa, where they were basically setting up an alternative financial uh, order that will compete against the United States. And so there was absolutely nothing to be gained at that point. I mean, if, if Putin wanted to kill Prigozhin, he would have had him off the, uh, when he was in, in Africa. Now, it's, it's important to understand, Prigozhin was merely a figurehead. The Wagner Group was a tool, an instrument of uh, Russian military intelligence, the GRU. So one of the, sort of one of the real rules of intelligence operations is you don't poop where you eat soon. And they're not going to kill Prigozhin on Russian territory an hour and a half north of Moscow in the midst of all this other, because it distracts. Uh, and, and it creates a predicate for an investigation where that investigation could potentially uncover those intelligence operatives. So when you, when you look at the, the damage on the plane, the fuselage came down intact, so there was not a bomb planted on board inside the aircraft. Had there been, it was pressurized at uh, 30,000 feet, uh, a bomb would have caused a catastrophic destruction of the fuselage. That didn't happen. 
it came down without its wings. Uh, it was a partial wing on one side of the aircraft, which is why you can see the fuselage as it's plummeting to earth is in a slight rotation. Uh, it looked like it was going clockwise. So um, it also could have been just an accident, uh, you know, an unfortunate accident. But uh, the, the maintenance on that aircraft, because of the way the wings detached, some of the initial photos of the wings did not appear to show any kind of catastrophic destruction. So um, it is uh, Prigozhin's an irrelevancy, really, because he was he was an intelligence operative as far as a, he was just a figurehead. He had no military experience. He was also he had a, a movie studio, and he was the ostensible head of the Internet Research Agency, the IRA, which also had ties to. The Russian military intelligence, and they they can they conduct cyber attacks and information operations around the world. It's interesting to go back at different pivotal moments in history and look at what might have been different, but for a couple of things working out differently. While it may seem just so far-fetched these days to even consider the idea that Russia and the United States would be part of NATO together, that was actually heavily discussed after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, Boris Yeltsin was very interested in exploring this. Even Vladimir Putin was interested in exploring Russia joining NATO. And it's difficult to imagine the kind of situation we're in today occurring if both Russia and the United States were in NATO. Obviously, one never knows. But just so folks understand the history here, the recent history, why did NATO and the United States reject the Russian attempts to join NATO? It's all about money. If you eliminate Russia as a justification for the massive defense budget the United States and NATO has, you, you no longer would have a reason to have NATO. So they weren't about to let Russia in because it, all of a sudden, that was the reason they existed, just, quote, stop Russia. Now, Vladimir Putin sat down with the head of NATO, I believe it was in 2000, and then was very clear about it, saying, hey, uh, we'd like to, you know, we'd like to join, we want to integrate ourselves with Europe because we see ourselves as a European nation. And they were rebuffed. Think about that. If, if all the United States had to do was say yes, and the world would have been different. Because we've got a lot of things in common with the current Russia. Um, they are very much against radical Islamic extremists. And in fact, they fought a successful war against a Chechen insurgency that was uh, they killed with thousands in Russia, and they beat them. And now... Those very Chechens that at one time were at war with Russia provide some of the best military units in the Russian army. Uh, a guy named Kadyrov is uh, the, the head of that, that Chechen republic. So, you know, it really it, it could have been different. Russia is not our enemy. We are making Russia our enemy. Why are we doing that? Well, we put Aegis missile system that came off of destroyers. Those are now based in Poland and in Romania. Those missile systems have the potential to carry a nuclear warhead. We put nuclear-capable missiles uh, one country away from Russia. Again, I say ask, uh, ask Americans, if Russia was doing that in Cuba, we'd have a problem with that, as we did back in, in 1962. And so we continue to 
act as, you know, we act as a bully instead of trying to act as responsible uh, statesmen and diplomats, trying to find peace. Just to circle back to where we began the conversation, your view as to why all these retired generals, General Petraeus, General Kane, General McChrystal, all with accomplished military careers, your view about why they so often get things wrong is because they're inexperienced in this sort of warfare, or is there something more nefarious? For instance, I've heard a lot of others uh, suggest that maybe it has to do with their current private sector business dealings, uh, being on certain uh, defense contracting boards or uh, being able to get uh, paid media jobs. You believe, though, it's due to ignorance, not due to financial interest. No, actually, I think it's a combination. I think, number one, the, the, the financial interest definitely way in there. But you got to look at how these guys got into the positions they did. They didn't do their own analysis. They didn't do their own writing. They had staffs which provided that. And oftentimes those staffs were very pliant. They didn't want to do anything that would uh, cause the general to be embarrassed or to challenge the general. And so they were accustomed to a system that catered to them. And so when they got to the, the three and four star positions, <coughs> excuse me, um, they, they were, their decision making was they got to choose between option A, option B, and option C. It's like going to a Chinese restaurant and figure out, you know, what are you gonna What are you gonna have for uh, meat? What are you gonna have for chicken? And what are you gonna have for veggies? Um, and now that they're out, they don't have that kind of staff. And so, without that staff work, they're left to their own devices. And frankly, they're not that smart. And uh, you know, let me I'm, let me just give you an example. Ben Hodges is one of the generals that pops up. He cites what the United States did in Iraq is the is the recipe for how you defeat the Russians. Well. We went into Iraq, Iraq with air supremacy. That meant there was nothing that Ukraine could put in the air that we couldn't shoot down. And he, he admitted that air supremacy was a critical component of the success that the United States had on the ground against the Iraqi forces. He also ignores the fact that many of the Iraqi generals had already been bribed by the CIA to surrender, so we weren't really fighting them uh, in the way that we would have a, a peer army. And, and yet... Hodges continues to insist, oh, yeah, the Ukrainians can beat the Russians. And they don't have air, they don't even have an air force that can rise up and go toe to toe with the Russians. Because the Russians have shot down most of their aircraft, which is why they're now pleading to get F 16. Right. Russia has a robust air defense system. Ukraine does not. Russia has an extensive, sophisticated electronic warfare capability that Ukraine or NATO does not have. So Russia enters this war with uh, many great advantages. And instead of recognizing that advantage, you know, starting last October, General Surovikin started erecting three lines of defensive emplacements, trenches, firing positions, dragon's teeth, which look like, you know, pyramids, concrete pyramids sticking out of the ground to prevent uh, tanks from going in uh, over them, minefields, barbed wire. At no time during the start of that construction project did Ukraine try to attack and destroy that construction problem project. Think about that. They, we saw it. Our, our intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance capabilities, including satellites, fixed-wing aircraft, drones, 
they were quite, we saw it all being constructed. Why didn't we stop the construction if we were so convinced that we had the edge? The reason was we did not have the capability. Ukraine did not have the capability. And so what has uh, happened, Russia built these defensive lines, and now for the last three months, Ukraine has been trying to reach the first defensive line. They haven't even broken through that, even though General Milley says they have. He's, he's wrong. They have not breached even that first defensive line. So uh, it's, just, it's just another example of what I call military malpractice. The, the Russians are, are outthinking and outperforming Ukraine and recognize when this, when this war started last February 2022, Ukraine, even though it was not an official member of NATO, it was treated as a de facto member of NATO. And it had the second largest army in NATO after the United States. The third largest is uh, held by Turkey. And if Turkey decides to walk away from NATO, NATO's in a world of hurt. They keep talking about, oh, we're bringing in Finland and Sweden. Oh, good luck with that. You know. They can fill 10,000 people. That's how many That's how many casualties the Ukrainians are suffering in a week. You know, it's so been... It's just a, it's, nonsense. Uh, let me end with this, and I hope you'll come back soon, but it's been very difficult getting an accurate casualty count from this Ukrainian war, but there are estimates that there could be as many as 400,000 Ukrainians dead and wounded. And I was listening to you on my friend Judge Andrew Napolitano's podcast the other day, and I thought you made a terrific analogy where you you said that if someone were to tell someone else, like a Judge Napolitano or just an average ordinary person, to go into the ring with Mike Tyson in his prime, and you can beat Mike Tyson, you can beat Mike Tyson, well, Mike Tyson would, you know, show you that that was not the case, people would have a right to be angry with whomever was saying you can beat Mike Tyson. The United States has given in aid to Ukraine more money than the entirety of the Russian military budget just in aid to Ukraine. Do you view the United States as partially responsible for the continuation of this war and the incredible carnage that we're seeing in Eastern Europe right now? Yeah, no, absolutely. We're we're the enablers. And see, the problem is, yeah, we can, get, we can give them Star Wars quality equipment, but that's not what we're doing. We're actually sort of doing the spring cleaning, emptying out the junk that's in our, in our closets that we're not going to use anymore, and we're giving, we're giving that to them. And the problem with that is, particularly with tanks, if you're going to train an effective tank crew, you need at least 12 to 18 months in order for that tank crew to be able to operate, not just a, you know, drive the tank down the street and be able to guide it and fire it, but be able to operate in a unit as part of a, a brigade operation. A brigade is about 5,000 guys. Uh, or in a battalion. A battalion is more like 500. So, you know, the, the, you, we can give them all that stuff, but where are they going to get the trained personnel? Because they don't have secure right. training bases in western Ukraine. Because Russia can attack those with caliber missiles, the Skander missiles. They've got a whole array of, uh, of things. And what we're really missing is the fact Russia is intact 
industrially. They have the ability to produce everything they need to fight this war. They have all the natural resources, the number one in the world in terms of natural resources. That includes oil and gas and all the rare earth minerals. So they're able to produce this. The United States and, and, and Ukraine cannot. We don't even have an answer. The United States cannot today produce enough. The, the number of artillery shells that we would produce in a year, Ukraine would expand in one month. Well, uh, Larry Johnson, so, I mean, we're, we're going to have amazing. to end it there. I very much appreciate the, the conversation. I want to encourage people to check out your website at uh, sonar21.com. And uh, there's a lot of interesting content on there that you will not see anywhere else in the media. Thanks so much for the time. Hey, Frank, thank you, man. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to join me at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.